to The Happy Writer. This is a podcast that aims to bring <clears throat> readers more books to enjoy and to help authors find more joy in their writing. I'm your host, Marissa Meyer. Thanks for joining me. One thing that has been making me happy this week, it's a big one, the COVID vaccine. It's here. I am not yet eligible to get it, but my parents have gotten it. My in-laws have gotten it. A lot of people that I really love have gotten it. And I didn't realize how freaked out I still was about this pandemic until this moment. Uh, And so it's felt like this weight off my shoulders. And here we are one year into this whole situation And I feel like there is finally light at the end of the tunnel. And any day now, we are going to be emerging from our bunkers like little butterflies emerging from our cocoons. And I am just delighted about it. So yay, science. Go science. And of course, you guys know how happy I am to be talking to today's guest, she is the number one New York Times bestselling author of the Shadow and Bone trilogy, the Six of Crows duology, the Language of Thorns, Wonder Woman Warbringer, and Ninth House, which was awarded the Goodreads Choice Award for Best Fantasy Novel of 2019. Her Grishaverse books are in development with Netflix, and the Shadow and Bone TV series is coming out in April. That is so soon, and I'm so excited. Her newest novel, Rule of Wolves, which comes out tomorrow on March 30th, completes the King of Scars duology. You guys have been hearing me gush about her all year long, and I am so excited to have her here. Please welcome Lee Bardugo. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I know you are a busy lady. You are in hot demand. I am. I love your, like, you're so cheerful. And I, and I feel like a little storm cloud who has wandered into your <laughs> And it reminds me of, there was a picture somebody took of us on tour once where you are, look so beautiful and you're smiling and glowing. And I'm sitting next to you, like, just with this grumpy, <laughs> resting bitch. <face. laughs> and I've always felt it encapsulated as perfectly. <laughs> That's funny. You and I, we are a little yin and yang. Yes. It yes. works though. I, think, I agree. I think we have a nice balance. Yes. <laughs> All right, Lee, why don't we kick things off um, with you telling listeners about your new duology, King of Scars and Rule of Wolves. So King of Scars uh, picks up about a year after the end of the Six of Crows duology. And it, it, it involves characters from the, the Shadow and Bone trilogy and the Six of Crows duology you can start with King of Scars. I did everything I could to make it possible for people to uh, enter into this duology without previous knowledge of the Grishaverse. But I will say, um, I think your experience will be richer if you have some familiarity with the Grishaverse. Um, King of Scars is a story of a young king who is uh, fighting some very real demons and attempting to rule uh, a country that has been badly damaged Uh, by a civil war that he carries scars from as well. It's also the story of uh, a Grisha known as the Storm Witch, uh, Zoya Nazielinski. 
And uh, Nina Zenik, who is a spy for Ravka and is uh, trying to cope with some of her own grief. And uh, if you don't like to start series until they're complete, you pick the right time because Rule of Wolves <laughs> comes out on March 30th. And uh, I don't know if I'll write more in the Grishaverse, but I definitely wrote this one as a finale. So I hope people enjoy it. Well, I know I enjoyed it. I've enjoyed all of your books. And this one was, it felt like a long, long wait for this one, but it was <laughs> worth it. <laughs> I do love a cliffhanger. I am yeah, a no, I know. And I, I understand. I am also a big fan of the cliffhanger, but as yeah. a reader, it can be a little torturous. <laughs> I know. And I like to say I'm sorry, but I am not. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, so, you know, I'm a huge fan of your books and your writing. Uh, so there's so many things I want to talk about and ask about, uh, a lot of craft things that I just really admire you for. I think you do so many things just splendidly. One of the things that has always kind of stood out to me from your books, uh, as being like a hallmark of a Lee Bardugo book is that every character we meet has a backstory and not just the main players and the viewpoint characters, but even like just these minor walk-on characters who are only there for a chapter or a page or a couple of paragraphs. There's always these lush details surrounding them that makes it clear they have a whole history and a whole life outside of this story. And I just love that because I can get really lazy with my minor characters. I don't think that's um, true. <laughs> um, and I just feel like that's so impressive. So is that something that you work to cultivate, that you're you're trying to bring to the surface? Or how does that happen for you? Well, first of all, thank you for all the kind words. I feel very buoyed by uh, all this praise. Um, <laughs> You know, I, and I'm glad to hear that about the secondary characters. I I think that, or really, I guess tertiary, or I don't know what what level we've gotten to. But um, look, I I don't think I don't sit there and write biographies for every character who comes onto the page. And you know, some characters, even the characters who essentially operate as cannon fodder, and I'm thinking specifically of um, Redvenko from um, the prologue to Crooked Kingdom. Um, you know, you want the the audience to be as invested as they possibly can be in that character, even if he just appears for a chapter. And to be wondering, you know, are we going to see them again? Um, how will, what does this person's, how does this person's fate impact the story? And in general, I think, you know, character is the thing that ties somebody to a book. You can do all the beautiful world building you want, you can have as many plot twists as you want, but it's not remotely meaningful unless it's seen through the lens of a compelling character's eyes. Um, and I think that the reason that I think I like to develop these characters and the way they become developed is really because I am in somebody else's point of view. So Nina at the start of King of Scars is working as a, at, a, at a, fish, a fish stall, very glamorous job, gutting fish. Uh, on the docks in Jeroholm and, or I guess she's in Elling. And, um, but what you don't realize is that she is working undercover and you quickly meet her contact. And, you know, 
what is Nina thinking about this person in this moment? It's very rare that we encounter someone and have no thoughts about them. Even somebody you meet at the, you know, a clerk at the grocery store or, uh, you know, somebody who you, who you think you will never see again, you instantly are parsing them and trying to understand them, or at least I am. And so I think um, my characters tend to uh, be in high risk situations and so consequently are analyzing everything in front of them through their own lens. And so that's why we're getting a little more detail on, on these characters that I hope brings them to life for the audience too. No, I, that's a brilliant way of thinking of it that it is, of course, you're writing from multiple points of view and everyone has special glasses that they see the world through. And I'm going to notice something about one person and you're going to notice something different about that person. And that's a fascinating way to think about it. Very much so. And I think that you see that, I think it's actually emerges very clearly in Rule of Wolves because um, Nina and Zoya and Nikolai all have a very similar goal right? They, they all are very, they're, they're trying to do the best for their countries, but they have personal goals that sometimes interfere with those things. And they also have very different worldviews. So Zoya greets everything as if it is a potential threat. Like that is the way she has learned as a survivor to deal with the world. Nina is fundamentally a spy and and a spectacular actress. And so she is uh, constantly uh, digging into the motives of the people around her and uh, wondering (laughs) and sort of inquiring as to how much information they have or how they can be useful to her. And Nikolai is a much more generous viewpoint. He is somebody who is going to give people the benefit of the doubt most of the time. Mm -hmm. So that's a great segue into the idea of larger character development and voice. Um, And you have written from the points of view of so many different characters. And yet it's as a reader, it's really easy I mean, obviously at the start of each chapter, you tell us whose head we're in, but I'm never falling out of somebody's head. I never feel like, you know, oh, this is Lee talking. It's always, (laughs) this is Nikolai or this is Nina or whoever it is. So is that, how do you, or what do you do to develop these characters to get their voices to sparkle so much? And alternatively, what do you do when a character isn't speaking to you and you're struggling Mm -hmm. to find that voice? Well, I think that, okay, so I I think I'm going to repeat this so many times. Uh, Revision is the secret to how these things happen. These voices are not as clear or consistent in the early drafts of the book. Uh, And I think that my voice creeps in a lot more in those early drafts. Um, When I wrote Six of Crows, you know, I had written the first trilogy, Shadow and Bone trilogy, and, and first person POV. When I wrote Six of Crows, I moved to third and what you know we call close third, where we really, when we're in their heads, we only know what that character knows. And, um, and my editor at the time, Noah Wheeler, kept, she would say, you know, I'm losing, she would mark specific paragraphs. She would say, I'm losing Jesper here. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, who is this? Who's talking right now? And for me, this was a skill I really had to build up where uh, I would, you know, where I had to learn to catch myself. Um, And it's very easy to do, especially because if you're dealing with exposition or description, you know, you, it's easy to, to fall back into your own voice or into simply a a kind of narrator's voice. 
But the way I weed those out is through revision and through reading my characters out loud. Um, I read all of my drafts out loud. It's incredibly tiresome, especially, <laughs> it is. especially, I mean, you know, when you are in, you know, the, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth revision of a book, like wherever you are, when you're getting to copy edits and first pass, and you're so tired of story. when the book is 600 pages long. It is very long. <laughs> and this is, I consider the perfect length for a book, 400 pages. I do. And whenever I start a novel, my goal is always to write a 400 page book. And, and it never, never works. Um, but, I understand that problem. I'm familiar with that problem. Yes, I think you are. So, but you know, I, and it, it really becomes present when you're in revision and and it's quite scary when you're on deadline because you don't, if you take your work seriously, you don't want to let things fall through the cracks. And it's so easy to miss things in revision. But that is definitely when character voice really starts to land. And I think you can tell um, when you're reading, when you start to really fall into the rhythm of the character, you your physicality, I think, even changes. Like I find myself leaning into a character's voice when it's really working. And so I think, you know, uh, what I try to do is then lean into those moments and say, okay, what's what's locking in here? This is this is the touchstone that is gonna that needs to be what I come back to every time to keep that character's voice um, from deviating. Um, and I think, you know, some characters arrive speaking loud and clear um, and others take a little while to get there. And there's usually sort of one moment or one bit of dialogue that suddenly locks that character in for me. Um, and, and for me, like in Six of Crows, for Nina, Nina was very boring in the first draft. She was almost like a cipher or the plot was just kind of happening to her, which if, you know, I love her character and who she became, but she didn't arrive fully formed. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I was really working on the first scene that she shares with Kaz and she sort of toes her slippers off and lets her public persona drop. And she's, uh, you know, so hungry and she starts to eat this cake and Kaz says, you know, you have crumbs on your cleavage. And Nina just says with her mouth full, I don't care. I suddenly was like, ah, Nina Zenik has arrived. Like this is my girl. <laughs> like this is, I suddenly felt myself, you know, and you can't see me, but I'm sort of doing this kind of like wriggling into the chair, um, you know, that feeling at the end of the day. And I thought this, this is how this woman moves through the world with, with a tremendous sense of, of pleasure and confidence. And, and she locked in for me. And so I think I'm always looking for those moments with particular characters um, and then using that, returning to them again and again. So that brings up a great question for me that I remember having back when I was reading Six of Crows. So you started with this trilogy, um, you know, which first person trilogy. And then for your second go at a series, you decide to have six main characters mm -hmm. and, and six unique points of view, six subplots happening all at once. Was there ever a moment where you regretted that decision? <laughs> wow. Can like six months be called a moment? I mean, it is so ambitious. I, isn't it funny though? I think, I think as writers, we're always setting a new challenge for ourselves. And yes, there were many moments in the writing of Six of Crows when I thought, 
someone smarter than me should write this book. I can't do it. I don't know how. And I, and I didn't because I'd never done it before. Mm. Um, and a lot of the things that I, you know, a lot of my experience with heist, I had written, read some, you know, heist and con books, but a lot of it came from film and the tricks that work for heists in film and television do not work uh, in a novel. It is a, but you need to still extract the same pleasure that people get from 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 the twists and turns of a con or a heist uh, on the page. So it was an incredible challenge, and I frequently felt like I was failing. And it was a book that, you know, the way I always think about it is, you know, when you get an idea for a novel, you fall in love. Hmm. Inevitably, you're going to fall out of love with that story. And the question is, where in the process will you fall back in love? And sometimes for me, it's, you know, oh, after I've just cracked that first draft and with, but with others like Six of Crows, it took many revisions to finally fall back in love with that story and to feel like I was doing it justice. And it was quite terrifying, honestly. Well, I think, I know for me, and I'm sure for a lot of listeners and a lot of aspiring writers, it's comforting to hear (laughs) and someone talk about that it is difficult and we do set ourselves up with these challenges that seem like such a great idea at the outset and then halfway through you're just like what was I thinking Uh, but to know that it turned out into it turned into such a treasure you know, by the end is it's, it's nice. It's nice to hear that. Well, and I will say this, you do get better at it. You know, I could not have written Crooked Kingdom, which is this kind of little matryoshka doll of cons, you know, it's con on top of con, top of con. That could not have happened if I hadn't written the ice court heist in Six of Crows. And when I was setting out to write Rule of Wolves, I had put, I don't want to spoil King of Scars, but you know, I, I had a situation where I had, where I, I really was going to have to write a lot of like court intrigue and machinations. But I was like, I don't care about court intrigue. And then I suddenly realized that this character actually is in a state of conning everyone around her all of the time and how delightful that was. And that I knew exactly how to write a con like that. And then it got really fun because it was, you know, uh, little tiny heists and and grand cons that were all being executed um, from this one character's uh, point of view. And that was, you know, sort of finding the thing that that you do know how to do and, and letting it be your anchor as you try to struggle with the things you don't know how to do can be very effective. No, that's a great point. I do wonder, so if somebody is listening to this, uh, let's say a aspiring writer, you know, working on a novel and they have an idea and they're so excited for it, but they also feel like they've maybe bitten off more than they could chew. What would you say to them? I mean, I would say, look, you're supposed to feel that way. Okay. Our culture doesn't really teach us how tough creativity is. You know, we think of creativity and of the creative life as these big bursts of inspiration that then propel us to a finished product. But that's really not how it works. Writing a novel means sitting with the discomfort of something not living up to your expectations for a very long time, which isn't to say there won't be good days when you feel like, yes, the story is unspooling in front of me and I am a genius, but you will have probably a lot of days where you do feel like you're failing and like the idea is too big for you. And all I can offer is that one, do not compare 
you, and this is a fight. It's a fight I engage with all of the time. Do not compare your first draft or your second draft or your third draft to your favorite novels. <laughs> you have to remember, look, you know, one of the curses, the curse of being a writer is that you're a reader too. And if you're a reader, you know what good writing is. And so when you sit down to write that first draft, you're like, I know what good writing is. This is not it. <laughs> so don't, you know, you must not compare those early drafts to what is the final revised, perfected and polished draft of your favorite book. Yeah. Um, so let yourself off the hook as much as you possibly can um, as, to, pre to preserve your confidence, to preserve your momentum. And then the second thing is that, you know, when you have those moments, when you feel discouraged, when you feel like uh, you've bitten off more than you can chew, that is a sign not that you are on the wrong path, but that you're on the right path. Okay, that you are trying to do something bigger and better than you've done before. And those moments of struggle and how you face them are what are going to separate the amateur from the professional and the published author from the unpublished author and the finished manuscript from the unfinished manuscript. You have to learn to sit with that discomfort and that understanding that it will not be right for a long time. And all you can do is write a scene, write the beginning of a scene, write a sentence, bit by bit by bit, and trust the process to get you where you need to be in that first draft so that then you have something to work with in the drafts that follow. Mm -hmm. That's all such good, good advice. <laughs> it's easy to say, harder to follow. <laughs> okay, I want to go back to kind of craft more, like craft-focused things again. Um, another thing that to me is a hallmark Lee Bardugo thing. And maybe it's not in every one of your books, but certainly a number of them have really heart-wrenching character deaths. In <laughs> she Which part of me is like, maybe this is a questionable career decision. <laughs> <laughs> but they're so good. And I know I'm not the only one who has cried uh, a number of times in reading your books, but I also know that writing death scenes are really hard. Yeah. So without, of course, spoiling, we don't want to give anything away for people who haven't read your books yet, but what, how do you approach a death scene and, and how, what is, what is kind of the, what are some of the strategies that you use to bring in that emotion, but also steer clear of like melodrama, which is, I feel where kind of a lot of us naturally want to go. Um, Look, on the first draft, <clears throat> steer directly into that melodrama. Do whatever you <laughs> Good. <laughs> do it, just crash your boat upon the rocks of melodrama. <laughs> um, I, again, you know, revision, where I, what I find in the process of writing a really deeply emotional scene is that I can't hide from it. In the early drafts, there may be, you know, some some real emotion, but I think especially when I'm talking about death. You know, I lost my father 10 years ago um, when he was very young. He was only in his 50s. Um, my partner lost their mother um, this past October. Um, you know, most of us have some experience with grief or loss. And I find that I have to dig into those things when I'm writing these moments. Um, one of my characters in King of Scars is burying 
someone that they care about deeply uh, in, in one part of the story. And it was just so painful to write because, because it meant revisiting what grief actually means. And all I can offer is that it's usually a pretty emotional experience for me in the revision process. Um, but I do want to cause the reader pain. <laughs> Um, and I, and I want that because otherwise I haven't done my job. Um, I want you to care about this character, even if the character is a villain or an antagonist, I want you to, um, to in this moment, feel this loss. Um, and when I kill off, and the thing that always gets to me is I'll, I'll often get messages that say, you know, this person didn't deserve to die or whatever. I was like, and I can't help but think, you know, who does? You know, except for a very few, and they never get it. I, you know, they never get them. Never the ones who die young. You ask who dies. I have a few ideas. <laughs> I know, really, I have a list. But you know, who does deserve you know death when it comes? And to me, that is something that figures very prominently in my books. I know that people want heroic deaths or deaths that make sense, but I find that death is often arbitrary and cruel and. Um, it is really left to the people behind who need to make sense of it. In terms of craft, what you're really, again, this comes back to character because we are witnessing this death usually from the perspective of uh, a character we already know and hopefully are invested in. And so the loss has to be specific to them and their own experiences and their own view of the world. And so I think that's where that sort of deep connection comes from. Um, but yeah, it's, it is emotional, but I think that there are, you know, emotion often catches me by surprise when I'm writing a draft. Uh, and I suddenly realize, oh, that's why I was telling this particular story at this particular time. Mm. How often do you make yourself cry? <laughs> In drafting, very rarely. In revision, repeatedly. And that is an embarrassing admission because I used to really laugh at authors who said that. I thought it was so obnoxious. Like, oh, I'm such a genius. I've made myself cry with my brilliance. You know, like I thought, what kind of chump does that? And then catch me sobbing at my laptop. And at one point, I remember I was writing... Um, I was writing a, a death scene and I was crying as I wrote it. And, and one of my friends was in the living room with me and she said, what, what's wrong? And I said, this is so sad. And she said, you're writing it. <laughs> I was like, I know. <laughs> like, it is a little glutton for punishment. -y. <laughs> but that's how you know you got it right. Like if I feel like you've got to, you cannot shy away from those things. If you're not somebody who is, I'm somebody who's their emotions are sort of always um, at the forefront. I'm an Aries. I am a, you know, a very ferocious person. Um, I have a quick temper. I, I cry so easily. I cry at commercials. I cry at songs, you know, I will see a dog on the street and be like, adorable. <laughs> I mean, I am a mess of a human. So it's not surprising that I would cry at these things. But those emotions 
are very accessible and I think that they're useful and they tell me that I'm doing something right. And I don't just mean in terms of tears, like there are moments and I, I suspect, you know, you write very action heavy books where you're like, like I get the chills when an action scene is working right. Like I feel in that moment like a badass mm-hmm. and I feel sort of, um, I feel dangerous in that moment, even though I am not, I'm sitting in my pajamas, you know, <laughs> with my, my complete lack of cardio or <laughs> training at all. I do feel, I feel that thrill. I feel that adrenaline. Like you, you key into that again, that's a touchstone. You want that feeling when you're reading or writing, you want to feel those emotions because that again means that you're getting something right. And as you get into deeper revision, you will lose that because you will be fiddling about and dealing with technical things. So you need to remember what made you fall in love with a moment, a fight scene, a story, um, so that so that it can restore you and, and get you through. Because I always have this moment, and I don't know if you do, when I'm in 1P, and for, first pass, do, I don't know if your um, listeners, well, first pass is basically like, it's the first time you see the book laid out, um, the way it will look on the page. And every time I do first pass, I think, wow, we should not publish this book. No, no. I always have this moment where I'm like, "Mm, nope, this is a bad idea. I don't know who was drunk and decided (laughs) we should publish this book, but we should definitely not. And in those moments, you need to remember what brought you to the story in the first place. Yeah, I have those moments, not usually in first pass, usually by the time it's designed and it's, you know, been through multiple drafts and I see it laid out like a book. That's usually my first moment where I feel like, okay, this isn't half bad. Oh, We're going to be all right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it's too late to pull the ripcord. <laughs> <laughs> Who is in charge of this? Who is driving this boat? That is exactly how I feel. And I remember actually the first, when I, when, when we signed my first book deal, you and I were the same de- debut year. And I remember the morning after we had made the deal, I thought, oh, they're going to change their minds. Oh, no. They were all just completely, like, they they were caught up in this, and they're going to call me today and be like, mm, regrets. Oh. No. Yes. This is the way my brain works. I call it disaster origami. Like, any good thing that happens, I'm like, uh, watch me. Watch me turn it into a swan of misery. Oh, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't and you've now gifted the world with so many <laughs> fabulous stories oh you <laughs> but I know I I totally know what you mean by those the doubts that never go away I keep thinking no. at some point I'll you know hit a moment in my career where I'm like no I'm good people like nope. me I must have a talent for this or something nope. and nope it, it never quite get quite gets there you know, I think in some ways it serves us well. Like I would love to have, I, I frequently think how delightful it would be to be shameless for a while, you know, to just not have, and I mean that quite literally shameless, like to not have that voice in my head and how much work I could get done if I didn't have this internal critic. But I think as authors, we are wherever you are at whatever stage of career, whether it's aspiring or, you know, debuting or longtime publishing, we are asked to walk this very weird tightrope between these kind of delusions of grandeur that we require in order to draft a book to say, I have an idea in my head that should be consumed by many people, <laughs> um, you know, to, to have those delusions of grandeur that allow you to get through a draft, the kind of audacity required to get through a draft. 
And then the abject humility that is required for revision Mm -hmm. to be able to say, I got this wrong, or I need to fix this, or I can do better. Um, you know, and to have somebody else tell you that ideally, if you have a good editor, you know, I, I often talk to young writers and they will ask me, you know, how much does an editor make you change as if it's an adversarial relationship? Mm-hmm. And certainly I think there are some author editor relationships that are adversarial, but in my experience, you want an editor who is invested enough to give you real notes and real feedback and to push you and challenge you because that is the way the story gets better. And, and the worst possible thing you could have is an editor who gives it a cursory read and says, looks good. Let's go. Right. Right. No, you really want to feel like you have someone who has your back and who's yes. looking out for you and for the book and, and really pushing it to be as good as it can be. Yes. I mean, I was lucky enough to have the same editor on my first five books and, and she was just a very like rigorous editor, you know, and, and not, I love curmudgeons. Like I'm one of those gluttons for punishment. Who's like, you give me no praise. I will find a way to extract praise from me. You know? <laughs> like I am all about earning the grumpy person's praise. And, but it, you know, I, I the, frequently the note, I not there yet, not there yet, not there yet. And, but because of that, I think that I've become a better guardian of my own work and I, and I will push, you know, I will try harder to find not just the first metaphor that comes to mind, but the right metaphor and, and to seek out those places where the voice wobbles um, and, and to shore up logic where, you know, sometimes I'll just sort of wave my hands and be like, that seems good enough. Mm-hmm. But you know, that editorial voice can definitely become a great ally in, in, in your process. Definitely. And I'm so glad you brought up metaphors because that was actually one of my specific nitty gritty weird craft things that I want to talk to you about because you write the best metaphors and I I mean your books are just full of them and every one of them feels like just a perfect little gem. Um, I actually wrote a few of them down some of my personal favorites from this series one of my favorite. <laughs> I love this. I'm like, please praise me. I require it to survive. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it's weird hearing your own writing. No, I love it. Anyway. Do it. <laughs> In Nikolai's experience, honesty was much like herbal tea, something well-meaning people recommended when they were out of better options. <laughs> I love that. And then here's one. He was the human equivalent of a head cold. <laughs> Oh, Nikolai, so droll. (laughs) Um, Okay, one more. War was like fire, sudden, hungry, and easiest to stop before it had taken hold. They're just so good. Thank you. How do you do it? Oh, God, thank you. Um, (laughs) First of all, I think it's interesting that that so many of these are Nikolai because he's a character who loves wordplay Mm. and who, um, who I think he thinks wittily, you know, he has a clever, he has a busy and clever mind. And so it it is fun to write in his POV. Um, I will, how do I come up with them? I really don't know. Um, I knew going into this question that this is one of those ones like, I don't know that you have an answer for this, but. But here's the thing. Okay. So sometimes I will use placeholder language. 
And so I don't recall exactly, but, you know, it is completely possible that in the early drafts, his description, I believe that's a description of Adric, mm-hmm. um, that Nikolai's description of Adric was probably, um, you know, he was, he was, you know, gloomy or uh, permanently depressed or, uh, you know, a little storm cloud, as I described myself, you know, or um, some kind of language that was less specific you know, and that, that was maybe did not, did not seek to amuse. Um, And then in revision, you go back and you try to find, you try to, and this, again, I think it comes back to character and voice to really hone in on the way the character thinks and speaks. And so, you know, to find the thing, you know, the, the entirety of Rule of Wolves is about stopping a war. And so finding a central metaphor for that was very important to me. Um, and also, originally, I wanted to call the book The End of Fire. Um, and because, because it was about stopping war. So I think I'm always looking for these small turns of phrase. Um, and you just don't know where they're going to come from. Um, I remember... I remember when I was writing Six of Crows, there's a phrase Inez uses where she says, it's a phrase her father taught her. It's a Sully saying, the heart is an arrow. It demands aim to land land true. And I remember in the first draft, just writing what I wanted the the statement to express. You know, you need aim. You need a goal in order to achieve it. And then going back and finding the language to express that intent. Do you ever, like just in your day-to-day life and you're going about your business, do these metaphors ever come to you and you do you have like an idea file of things that you write down? Or is it really when you're in the heart of revising that you're, oh, you I, pause and take a minute to, to think of, well, what what is this like? I definitely have an idea file uh, and it can be, Anything from a, a single line of dialogue, a joke, a description—you know, something that I saw that that I that I thought of a way to describe, or that stuck with me for some reason. These thoughts usually, what I do is I record them on my phone, and then I transcribe them to a kind of master document. And if there's a time when I get stuck or I'm looking for inspiration, I will go back and I will um, rifle through that and see if anything sparks. Mm -hmm. Um, But sometimes, you know, this is the beautiful part of the mystery of writing and the terrifying part, because you wonder what if it, what if, what if whatever reservoir these things are coming from runs dry? I think my favorite line I have ever written was about, it was something Sturmhan said in Siege and Storm, he says, you know, Alina asks him who he is. And he says, my mother was the oyster and I'm the pearl. And this is not a line that readers ever quote back to me ever. <laughs> you know, this is not one of those, that something that shows up on in pretty quote graphics or whatever. But for me, it was, it was precious because he just said it. He said it in my head. I didn't think about it ahead of time. I didn't, you know, there was no machination to it. It was truly this character just coming to life and and it was that to me that kind of alchemy is is so mysterious but I am very grateful for it yeah no those moments the moments where the characters just like it's like a little sh- sunbeam yes. shining yes. down on you and they're yeah I, a blessing and then you're like where did you go sunbeam <laughs> <laughs> but I, also, too, I think the best thing if you want to develop 
you know, the ability to write figurative language that really only comes from reading. Mm. Like you have to read broadly and, um, you know, and, and read books that are, um, that are language rich, I guess is what I would say. Yeah. Okay. I hope you're not tired of talking about it because of course I have to ask about <laughs> Netflix. <laughs> I am not tired. I will never tire of actually ask me at the end of this week when I've done. Yeah, three I know. I know you're in hot promo season right now. Okay. At what point did it start to feel real for you or does it even feel real? For you? <laughs> um, I th- think with the trailer release and I know that's crazy because it's so late in the process um but it really it it just sort of felt like something that was never going to come to be and when we first you have to remember I sold the first option on the rights to shadow and bone back in 2012 to dreamworks and it went no that was the first ones that bought lunar chronicles yeah, we could have to buy things and then not make them. <laughs> um, and it, it went nowhere. Um, and in fact, I'll tell you all a little bit of Hollywood gossip. So what happened with, I knew that Shadow and Bone was a long shot to get made anyway, because it's, you know, fantasy is so expensive to me. So it means, you know, a studio or, um, a, you know, a streaming service taking a huge gamble on something in a way that uh, other stories are not the same kind of gamble. And if you don't throw money at it, you know, uh, audiences know immediately and it breaks the whole um, idea of being transported to another world, another universe. So I knew that Shadow and Moon was a long shot, but then the executive who brought it in left, so it was dead in the water. But before that happened, we had a screenwriter who was assigned and I guess they didn't like his first draft and he was feeling stung about it. And so he he wrote this email to me telling me that Shadow and Bone was unadaptable. And it was this long explanation of how it was impossible to combine a coming of age story with a fantasy story. <laughs> and I was like, you mean like, Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or any other <laughs> fantasy story that's ever been done. I was so hurt and I felt like so like stung by this and oh no, my work is unadaptable, you know. And and so this is I hope somewhere he is, you know, crying yeah. into a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> but um but it was, you know, th- that was where this process began. And so for me, there's always been this kind of like, look, you just don't. No. And even, you know, my agent said to me when we then sold the rights to basically, you know, five, six books of the Grishaverse to um, Netflix, you know, it, it seemed like we had all this momentum and, you know, Eric Heiser was working on the pilot and he said, you know, you, you, you just don't know until you're on your way to the premiere. Yeah. And <laughs> I was like, and I took that to heart. Because, you know, you don't want to, anticipation, especially coming off of 2020, you know, anticipation feels almost dangerous to me now. It feels, you know, the idea of planning something, of looking forward to something is almost daunting. So, yeah, yeah, so, you know, even when the actors were on set, even when we locked all of uh, production and, and finally locked the episodes and the special effects on the music, I thought... 
they'll just change their minds. You know, it's the same as with first pass where I'm like, they'll just change their minds. And it wasn't until that trailer was out there. And I remember when they sent it to me before, um, when we all got to watch it together, I, you know, (laughs) they did a reaction video of the cast and people were like, where's your reaction video? And I'm like, my reaction video would have just been me sobbing (laughs) for the full two and a half minutes. And I am not exaggerating. Like I, as soon as that music came up and we saw that horse galloping toward the fold, it was like, I just couldn't quite believe it. And I still can't. Yeah. No, I wanted to cry watching the trailer. Like on your behalf, I'm so happy. (laughs) I'm so happy for you that it's getting made. And I'm so excited to watch it. Thank you. I mean, you never know, you never know how something will be received and that is all completely out of my hands, but I do know how much love and care went into the work on this show. And I think I had a surprisingly lovely experience with the adaptation, which is not to say that there weren't um, moments of shouting and of frustration. And I certainly didn't always get my way. Um, but all that said, I always felt respected and I don't think that's true for every author who goes into an adaptation process. No, definitely. And it is, it is hard. And of course it's hard to explain to readers who they just love these books and they're so invested and, you know, have, have such heartfelt memories about reading the books. And for so many readers, they want to see things adapted into TV and movies, but it comes with a, you know, a little bit of, you know, but only if they don't ruin it, but only if they don't say <laughs> anything about it. Um, but of course we know that that's not possible. It's a completely different form of storytelling. And so you just kind of have to cross your fingers and hope for the best. I think. I think that the thing that I feel best about and sort of most confident about moving into the the show is that I think it was very it kept the characters and their journeys intact Mm. so even though the specifics of those journeys have changed a little bit and uh you know and even though we have done this sort of weird thing with the timelines because now we're meeting the crows um you know much early we didn't meet them in in the shadow and bone trilogy but now we are meeting them Mm -hmm in this timeline, they still, there's nothing, there was, there's no moment I don't believe when viewers will be watching this and say, that's all wrong. That's not something that Kaz would do. That's not something that Mal would do. That's not something that, I mean, we're calling him Kerrigan, but the Darkling would do. You know, there's no, the their core characters are very much intact. And so my hope is that it will provide people with something different from the books and that they'll always have the books to come back to and to experience um, on their own, but they'll also have this new thing that still gives them the sort of, um, you know, joy and pleasure of those stories and those characters just with uh, just a different medium. Sure. I hope so too. And I am super excited. I have it marked on my calendar. Can't wait to binge it. (laughs) Me too. I too have set aside the day. You know, I have not watched the final episodes. Um, 
I, you know, you there, I've seen many iterations of them, you know, you watch them through many um, revisions and give notes and all of those kinds of things. But I deliberately did not watch the final cuts with music and um, mm-hmm. final effects because I wanted to have the experience of watching it at the same time as my readers. So um, that's awesome. It'll be, it'll be a strange and exciting day. Yeah. Are you going to do like a you know, live stream on Twitter <laughs> or something? Is there something planned for yeah, I have not, I have absolutely no idea. Right now, I feel like I am just um, treading water and just trying to 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 keep my head above the surface because yeah. um, I have never, I have, I've never been this busy in, a, in this particular way. I've certainly been busy in a deadline kind of way where I was, you know, writing all day long and freaked out and exhausted and, and trying to meet a deadline, but this is very different. It's yeah. so many emails and zoom meetings and, um, and I, I'm just not used to it. <laughs> so right, right, right now I, I haven't made any big plans, but I will definitely do something to celebrate. Um, and I will honestly say that I'm a little bit I have been pulling back from social media, um, which is something I recommend to all writers at every level. Um, you know, I can't engage in the same way that I used to. There's, um, it's not just the negativity. It's also sort of just the intensity and the quantity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I miss the ease of interacting with readers and feeling that personal connection, but it has gotten a lot harder to maintain. Yeah, no, I, I feel that 100%. Yeah. I can also imagine with something like this, you know, the the series releasing in that moment, there would be this inclination. I know at least for me there would be this inclination to, you know, have a big publicity moment with it and you know whether that's, <laughs> you know, live streaming on Instagram or doing the big Twitter fest or whatever it is. On the other hand, it is such a huge moment in your career and it's such a personal thing that I, I can also see wanting to kind of take a moment just to have for you in between you and this show. Um, and I think both are, are perfectly relevant. Yeah, I I don't, I, that's interesting that you say that because I definitely felt that. Like I, my friends have been like, are we, you know, if we're vaccinated, can we do a watching party and we could do it in somebody's backyard? And, and on the one hand, I'm like, yes, you should do this. You know, like you should do this. And then on the other hand, my little introverted soul just wants to kind of curl up and let this wash over me. Um, and, uh, and I don't, you know, this is such an incredibly wonderful time and, and I'm trying at every moment to just be grateful for it and go with it. But, you know, when you have a writer mind, it's hard <laughs> to just let things happen. There's a desire to, to control everything. I have a question actually from a fan perspective, what's happening with the Lunar Chronicles? I've always felt like it would be an incredible adaptation. I actually always sort of imagine it being animated. Um, like what, is there movement on that? Or is it a Hollywood, we're just moving in circles and calling it momentum? Uh, the question of my life, Lee. Um, yeah, so we're in negotiations. This is gonna be the fourth time that it's been sold. Um, and right now wow. we have two companies interested. Uh, so we're, we're, we're back to that stage and fingers crossed that whoever ends up getting it will be the one that actually makes it. <laughs> I want it to happen so I bad. So, but that's, that is so frequently the journey of these properties of yeah. these stories. You know, I think that we, 
we love the idea of, you know, our first book being so wildly successful that it instantly is option and then it's instantly adopted and we're involved every day and on set every day. And you're like, it's just not, that is a, a magical scenario that most authors will never get to experience. So um, yeah, honestly, no, and I, I remain an optimist. I think that it's definitely could still happen. I, I have not by any means sure. given up on it. Um, but also what you were saying before, you have to kind of maintain a little bit of cynicism because it's easy to get carried away with every new oh, yeah. thing that happens. But the the reality is that it's it's not a for sure thing until it's a for sure thing. Yes. Yeah. Yes, very much so. So, okay. Um, we are going to now wrap this up with our happy writer bonus round. Oh my. What book makes you happy? Ooh, um, probably Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne Jones. Oh, good it's, choice. And I really love the audiobook. If I'm really sad or just going through a chaotic time, I love to just sit and or lie down and listen to it for a while. So that's definitely a comfort, a comfort read for me. That one's on my list to read with my girls sometime soon. Oh, that'll be amazing. It's such a fascinating book because it means something different depending on what age you are when you read it. Like I think yeah. it really, I call it the shapeshifter book. Oh, that's a good point. Oh, that makes me even more excited. Mm-hmm. What is your personal mantra? <laughs> Grudge held. <laughs> Actually, that is not untrue. You. I, am a, I am a spectacularly vindictive individual, but <laughs> Like Casbreaker did not come from nowhere, let me tell you. But, you know, my mom, <laughs> my mom went to the doctor a few years ago and she saw what he had written in her report and it said, patient is irritable, cantankerous and defiant. And I thought, yes, that is what should be on the Bardugo crest, irritable, <laughs> cantankerous and defiant. So I think that is my motto. Okay. On that note, what is one small thing that brings you a lot of joy? Oh, um, does everybody say the Great British Bake Off? No, but that's a great one. <laughs> it brings me so much joy. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say it's a toss up between that, which for me is like just complete joy and peace. Mm-hmm. Um, or Musubi is like my favorite <laughs> comfort food. It's spam and rice um, wrapped up in nori. And um, I that is my favorite comfort food. It brings me much joy. How do you celebrate an accomplishment? Oh, with Musubi. Um, <laughs> um, that's a great question. So before, actually, even during the pandemic, um, when I have finished a draft or I turn in a draft, my, my old ritual used to be to go to, um, this wonderful Korean spa that I used to live near. Um, and it closed down uh, a few years ago and it felt like a huge loss of this wonderful ritual. Um, but now what I do is there's a boutique in, um, uh, Pasadena that's called Goldbug. And I, I, I talk about it frequently. They're a wonderful little business. And uh, I'll usually purchase something from there for myself. Um, and I know the owners now. And um, they, they have a very strange range of things. 
Um, they support small artists. They run their shop almost like a gallery. And um, it's meaningful to me, not just because they have beautiful things, but because it was a shop that quite candidly, I couldn't afford to shop at for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Like I just couldn't, they have, you know, small things and affordable things, but um, I, you know, I, I, even after I was published, I, I had no savings really. I had come out of a very bad relationship and, uh, and left that relationship with no credit cards, no credit history, um, you know, which was all very <laughs> deliberate on the part of the person who had kept me in that relationship. But I had to borrow money from my mother um, in order to leave and to now be able to go to the shop and pick something out is um, really incredibly magical to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I understand that. Lastly, I know you said you are pulling away from social media, but where can people find you? (laughs) Um, I am on Instagram mostly. Um, I try to post (laughs) frequently, but I don't. (laughs) I I do my best. Um, But you can find me on Instagram as Bardugo, just the letter, not like... (laughs) (laughs) On Twitter too, but I really... It's really just announcements on Twitter. I... I really don't, um, I don't read my mentions anymore and, uh, I don't, I don't really engage there anymore. I just, it was just one too many things. And, and also I don't want to be heavy cause we're at the end of the show, but like people call me names all the time. <laughs> They'll be like, Hag, why did you kill this character? Or whore, when are you going to do this? And I'm like, I get that this is like the language of fandom now. Or like, they'll be like, if you don't give us this ending, we'll kill you. And I'm like, I know you don't mean that I hope you don't mean that but it was having an impact on me so I was like I'm just gonna not read this anymore yeah no you're not alone I I avoid Twitter anymore I feel like it's it's little minefield uh and I don't know I feel like people have forgotten that there's somebody on the other end of the computer screen with Twitter yeah the way I always describe Twitter and honestly social media in general is it's like you're walking down a hallway and you're like, high five, high five, high five. And then every so often, somebody just hauls up and punches you in the face. And it's like, sure, you spent days getting high fives, but what you remember is getting punched in the face. Yeah. And it makes yeah. you a lot less likely to want to walk down that hallway again. Yeah. 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 yeah I understand. Um, on that note, though, Lee, I love you. I give you all the high fives. <laughs> I love you, too. <laughs> And thank you so, so much for taking time for this podcast today. It is my pleasure. Thank you for the wonderful questions. It was so much fun to just like talk craft and books for a while. And, um, and I will have my fingers crossed for you on the Lunar Chronicles. Thank you. Readers, be sure to, of course, watch Shadow and Bone on Netflix when it comes out in a few weeks and check out King of Scars and its sequel, Rule of Wolves, which comes out tomorrow. Of course, we always encourage you to support your local indie bookstore if you can. If you don't have a local indie, you can check out our affiliate store at bookshop.org slash shop slash Marissa Meyer. Please subscribe and leave us a review on Google or Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at Marissa Meyer Author and at Happy Writer Podcast and give so much high fives. Until next time, stay healthy and cozy in your bunkers. And whatever life throws at you today, I do hope that now you're feeling a little bit happier.